0: Hey, happy holidays. We are replaying one of my favorite episodes of all time and one of the most listened to episodes of all time, a chat with Seth Godin. The episode consists of me lobbing a bunch of startup ideas of him and him telling me in real time how he'd get started on them. If you don't know Seth, this is a must listen, as is just about everything else he does. And if you've got a startup idea and a full-time job and are trying to figure out how to get momentum on that idea to see what it could be, join Tacklebox. Code HOLIDAY will get you 50% off your first month through January 5th. Apply at GetTacklebox.com. Enjoy the episode. Enjoy the holidays. Thanks so much for listening this year and see you in 2024. It is going to be your year. On to it. Today we have the guest, the best possible guest we could have, Seth Godin, a speaker, the best marketing mind there is, and an author who's written 20 consecutive bestsellers. These include books that have fundamentally changed how I think and act. My three favorites are Purple Cow, Lynchpin, and The Dip. I've gifted them easily to 20 people each. He's got a new book that'll come out around the time you listen to this called The Song of Significance. It's a management book for a new era, a book about leadership, a book that I will pre-order the second it's available as I do all of his books and read it the first weekend. Seth, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Wow. Well, that intro made the whole thing worth it. What a pleasure. Good to see you again.
0: (laughs) Um, Seth and I met once before, and I'm going to start with this story because I think it's, it's kind of a great one. We were introduced in 2015 by our mutual friend MPD. And we met at a conference room in Google. And the idea was for me to get Seth's opinion on Tacklebox, a company I was just in the early stages of. And so I was kind of up the whole night before I was terrified. I was stressed. I was practicing my pitch. (laughs) We get to Google and I meet Seth and he's very warm and, and kind. We walk into the conference room and he puts a backpack on the table and pulls out a screwdriver. And hops on his back. I have no idea if you remember this or not. Um, you jump on your back and start tightening the screws on the chairs. And you said, last time I was here, all the chairs were loose. So I brought a screwdriver <laughs> to fix the chairs and you gave me a screwdriver too and said, if you'd like to fix the chairs, you can do that too. So I jump on my back and we're screw driving, uh, screwing in the chairs and you sort of leaned over and you were like, so what are you working on? And I then <laughs> on my back uh, with the screwdriver in my hand, and about thirty seconds in, you said, "Okay, I get it. Do you want a hard three months or a hard three years?" And I said, "I prefer the three months, if possible." And you told me why I was thinking about tackle box wrong and what would work. And I spent about three months and shifted and. Every bit of success we've had since then was really due to that meeting. Um, so thank you again for that. And wow. I thought it would a fun way to start.
1: Love that story. Thank you for
0: reminding me. I have no recollection. <laughs> I didn't think you would. I think it was a 30-minute meeting. Now no, that's not ago.
1: why. It's because my brain, like I make my kids wear name tags. I don't remember anything. <laughs>
0: um, okay. So today I wanted to do something a little bit different than I will shut up and let you talk um, there are a lot of really great interviews where you tell your story, where you talk about Yo-Yo Dine, about marketing, about book publishing and packaging and all of that. Um, and I'm going to link to all of the, my favorites in the show notes, uh, as well as my favorite books. But I think for our audience, we could do something a little bit different. Um, our audience are people with startup ideas and full-time jobs who are trying to figure out how to start, like what they can mm-hmm. do. These are not professional entrepreneurs. Um, so I Those picked are out-
1: actually my favorite podcasts. I am bored of hearing my story. I wanna hear <laughs> other
0: people's story. Well, let's, I, I hope that it is true in, in at the end of the episode still. Um, but I have, so I came up with a few ideas that are actual ideas that have been pitched by our founders who are, uh, working on these things, and I think each of them represents a category of startup people work on. I think it'd be really useful to hear your thoughts on them. So, terrific! Um,
1: and just for the audience at home, we have not prepped in any way. You offered to send me stuff in advance, and I said let's do it on the fly.
0: Yeah, and I that makes me even nervous, but I'm sure it'll be it'll be great. Um, so, the first idea is a doctor that's been a doctor for about 15 years. And everybody has said that it's fine for us to share this stuff. So, um, they've been a doctor for about 15 years and he reached out and said, I want to make second and third and 10th opinions ubiquitous. I want this to be a thing that happens. And the, the text I think was great. So I'll read it exactly. Most doctors are a bit offended if you go seek three or four opinions, even if they claim that they aren't Patients can sense this and are hesitant to seek second or third opinions so that they don't anger their doctor. This couldn't be sillier. Getting five opinions is 50 times better than getting one. I wanna help people get 10 opinions for nearly everything. The structure isn't there. The culture needs to change. I have no idea how to do it. How do I start?
1: Okay. That's a, a worthy mission. <laughs> the, que- the question I would begin with is are you trying to actually change the way medicine is practiced in the United States and around the world? Or are you trying to build a practice for yourself where you will fill your days adequately compensated and well-respected? Cause those are two totally different projects hmm. in the first project. You have to give away almost everything control, uh, the idea needs to spread, not your business. And if we actually want to change the culture, we change the culture by having the idea be adopted by others as their own. If you need to win as a result of it, I think it's really unlikely you have the resources or the time to do that level of shift. On the other hand, if you want to build a business where 1,000 or 5,000 customers are enough to make you very, very happy, it's a totally different project. So let's be clear about which one of those two things it is. And Brian, I'll let you decide right this minute, which one you want me to talk about because they couldn't be more different in terms of the project.
0: I think the second one's more relevant, but I would be curious on the mindset shift there too, because a lot of entrepreneurs come with a grandiose idea of like, I'm going to change medicine for everyone, but, uh, how, So I guess let's talk about the second one. And then I don't know if you have any thoughts on how to let yourself put on blinders without feeling like you're giving up the cause.
1: Right. Okay. So you can move the cause forward by building the smallest viable audience and serving them well. So, you know, this project, there were only 10,000 copies of this in the whole world. That's not a lot of copies, but it changed marketing for a lot of people who have never heard of me. So you can do a thing that you own, that you control, that has ripples. So in this case, here's your problem, which you identified in the question. Doctors don't want this and patients don't want this. (laughs) Neither do insurance companies in the short run. Patients don't want this for two reasons. The first reason is the one you said, which is they don't like being in a room with someone who has status and appears to be annoyed at them. And second, we want closure. Particularly in the United States, people are way more likely to do surgery than physical therapy because surgery is once and done, and physical therapy is this persistent effort. Even though physical therapy has been shown for almost everything to be better than surgery, people get surgery because we're Americans, for God's sake. (laughs) And so when you show up and say this is going to involve uh, social challenges, uh, engaging with status roles, and you're going to then have to make a decision as opposed to the first model where someone else makes a decision and you get to blame them. Hmm. The number of people who want this today is very low. Hmm. And if you're going to engage in this, it seems to me, rather than persuading the doctors they are wrong and the patients they are wrong and challenging the status roles that fuel the whole industry, why don't you just find a few people a few docs, and a few patients who are ready for what you have to offer. Because if you can help 1,000 people avoid needless surgery and you can help five doctors feel like they are doing something that they are proud of, that's a good year's work. And you'll get paid well if you do that. So the method to get from what I just said to it's working, the steps aren't that hard. But mm. it's because you said, I'm looking for people who get the joke. And if they don't get the joke, good luck to you. Mm. If you want to do the first one, that's about journal articles, changing the medical structure, the medical school structure, figuring out how the insurance companies would reward. You know, if you get Aetna, just Aetna, to change how they, uh, reimburse patients and they require a second or a third opinion before you can have certain sorts of procedures, you will change a lot. But mm. to do that, you probably don't want to start a medical institution. You probably just want to be a lobbyist.
0: Mm. And so that's why I need to highlight the fork in the road. Fantastic. Um, and I think it's, that's a relevant example for a lot of people who are industry experts where there's a fundamental issue that they're thinking about changing. Yeah. Um, Great. A lighter weight one, one that I, I love, um, a sous chef from a great restaurant in the city reached out recently and she said, most great Italian restaurants are closed at lunch. Pasta options for lunch are scarce. Also pasta is very cheap. It's easy to make in bulk. It keeps extremely well. It can be frozen. There are huge possible margins. If you just had three types of pasta each day, And three Mm -hmm. types of sauce. So you could say I'll have the fusilli with the vegetarian bolognese. I'd love to do this as a pasta truck, but how do I start? How do I know if this is actually a good idea? How do I know if people will eat enough pasta to make this a business? How do I know if it's worth leaving a job I love to do?
1: I love this one. As someone someone who used to eat quite a bit of whole wheat pasta and now can't eat any, I am uh, a But I can tell you a good source for soba noodles, but that's a whole other story.
0: My wife is celiac, so we'll talk about that later. (laughs) Okay, so um,
1: your minimum smallest viable audience isn't very many people. And congratulations on doing uh, math of three times three, because that's nine varieties, (laughs) which is pretty good. If you did four times four, it gets even better. And then if you add three other toppings like cheese, spicy peppers, and one other thing, now you're into know, well into the double digits. <laughs> uh, depending on where you're located, the single biggest expense other than quitting your job is the permitting on the truck. And in the New York area, you said the city, do we mean New York city?
0: Yes, correct.
1: In, in the New York area, they're not giving out any more permits for trucks. I know this oh. from personal experience. So you got to buy somebody else's truck just to begin. Huh. And, um, When we think about any retail business, the math is pretty simple. The landlord keeps 95% of the profit if you have a good lease. And you, the person who does all the work, keep 5%. (laughs) If you have a bad lease, the landlord keeps 102% of the profit and you go out of business. So it's better to be a landlord than to be a renter when it comes to any retail business. And what we're seeing right now is this huge upheaval because uh, rents, particularly in places like New York, are spectacularly too high post-COVID. With all of that said, a food truck seems like a reasonable solution to that problem because you're not uh, the renter anymore, you're the landlord. The challenge you've got is, where's your route? And how do you find people who will walk up to the truck and spend money? Now, in the old days, the way a bootstrapping entrepreneur made money is by getting what used to be called a roach coach, which is one of those silver trucks that serves coffee. And if you just pulled it up in front of the right construction sites, you could make a fair living. Hmm. There aren't those sorts of construction sites around in the same volume there used to be, but there also aren't a lot of people who are going to an office the way there used to be. So the key to the whole thing is finding your route and one thing we learned from the Kalby uh, uh, Korean taco trucks in Los Angeles is that social media is the way to do that. So if you can figure out how to find followers, you just announce where your truck's going to be today. The people who are following you have given you permission to alert them. They rearrange their day to be at your truck where it's going to be when you need it to be there. And suddenly all of the structural problems of your business disappear. And so the hard part is where do you get the cash money to make the truck and how do you get the followers? And if I was going to bootstrap it, the way I would do it is this. I would find some cultural institutions that would be open to having you come cater their lunch for 50, 100 people. Uh, You don't have to quit your day job to do that because you can just do it on a day off or when you're not on a lunch shift. And the act of serving 50 people or 75 people where you don't need a truck to do it, where you're going to be engaging with people, how many of those people say, how do I get this again? And you find out in that moment in real time where they are and what they need. Is it you're like the soup person in Austin, Texas who does frozen home delivery? Or is this hot and fresh uh, for lunch on a given day in a given neighborhood? Hmm. And so- If you can do that once a week for eight weeks, now you've served 400, 800 people lunches. You haven't spent a penny out of your own pocket. You've figured out if you have a following or not. And now you can go to that group of people. You can even kickstart the price of the truck and say, all right, now we're going to the next level. But the key to all of this is there's tension at every step, but there isn't financial risk. There's emotional risk. And that's what bootstrapping is about putting the difficult conversations at the beginning, not saying I need to raise a bunch of money and do a bunch of fun stuff and then find out if it's going to work because then you've got this cliff of overhead and recovering from that is difficult indeed.
0: Amazing. Um, I love that idea of making sure you're the landlord, making sure the business fundamentally makes sense and then figuring out the, there's there's a part of the, my, I think my favorite book of yours, the dip, um, where you talk about how lots of people get kind of 85% of the way there and never. And so I, th- I thought about that when this person reached out cause it's like, Oh, you're, you made it to be the chef at this amazing place. You're so close. Um,
1: but I would also add cooking the pasta is not the hard part.
0: One more question on that. Um, we get this a lot. People reach out and say, and this woman had a similar thought. Can you start a business if you're not a domain expert in that business? If you haven't been, um, like let's another idea that she had had was what you alluded to actually. What if I made frozen meals for people and just started shipping them out? Cause pasta freezes really well.
1: Mm-hmm. What's the domain? The domain is not pasta. Mm. Again, it's the easy part. uh, Somebody uh, published a recipe years ago for an item that I wanted to make and now their website's down. And I was able to track this person down and say, I know you published a cookbook on this. I know the cookbook is uh, no longer online for $5. Uh, I'd love to buy the recipe from you. And she wrote back saying, okay, $800. (laughs) And I was offended because... The recipe isn't the hard part. I'll figure it out, right? <laughs> the hard part of any of these things isn't the recipe. I'm giving the recipes away all day long. The hard part is understanding that your domain is connecting people who know they have a problem to a solution they are willing to pay for. If you can be good at that, you can sell anything.
0: Great. Um Fantastic. Next one, I think is maybe the one that we get pitched in variations the most. And this (laughs) is the coach or the, uh, not, not like a athletic coach, a, a, you already know, um, the Pilates instructor, the service person who works one-on-one who wants to productize themselves. And the specific example, I think is an interesting one. It's from a a super successful career or um, uh, executive coach who says, Mm -hmm. I can go in and meet with a client for an hour and know a few things that'll help them grow enormously. So Mm -hmm. 99% of my value is delivered in an hour. And then I continue showing up for the duration. Mm -hmm. And the rest is really just accountability and me saying, did you do the thing that we both know you were supposed to do? Yes or no. And the idea is then that makes it only available to upper management. So how could he make this a product that is applicable to middle managers so that maybe there's a meeting with him and then an app or something like that? And how do you get started on that? And same with Pilates instructors, same with all of this. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So back to domain expertise. Uh, In all of these cases, the people who are asking these questions are mistaken about what the domain expertise is. Uh, There are only two kinds of people in the world. Uh, People who need a coach and know they need a coach and people who don't. The people who know they need a coach either have a coach or don't. If you want to grow your coaching practice, you either need to persuade someone they need a coach, very hard to do. You need to bump into someone in the moment they realize they needed a coach and don't have one yet, or you need to get someone who already has a coach to fire their old coach and hire you. These are the only three ways to grow a <laughs> coaching practice. And this is the hard part. The actual act of life coaching and executive coaching isn't particularly difficult or uh You know, I don't know if you know uh, Michael Bungay-Stanier, but uh, his book on the coaching uh, mindset can teach almost anybody to be a coach with not too much trouble. Hmm. Coaching is about someone coming to an interaction with a desire, with enrollment in getting to where they seek to go. And yes, some coaches are better than other coaches. I'm not denying that. But it's not like you're a Freemason where there's some sort of secret that if the secret was simply uttered, the problem would be solved. The hard part is getting enrollment. So when people start to figure this out, they say to themselves, I'm really good at coaching. Yes, you are, because you're getting the right clients. And if I could just figure out how to free up my time that I'm spending with clients, I could get more clients and productize what I do. But the product is You showing up with your time and effort to value the enrollment of the other person. That's what's getting paid for. If they didn't need that, they would just buy one of my books for $9 and they'd be done. Because I don't do any coaching at all. I turn down coaching gigs all the time because I don't want to, to feel like I am doing either job a disservice. So with all that said, that doesn't mean there isn't a scalable model here. But the scalable model is not selling what you currently sell, but at a bigger volume. It is selling a different thing. And I will give you the example, which works with executive coaching for sure, almost works with Pilates, but not quite as well, which is a guy named Joe Mancuso bumped into me in 1997. When I was six, when I was first starting YoyoDine, one of the first email com- uh, uh, internet companies, and so it was earlier than that. I was ninety-three, and he said, "Would you like to join my pack?" And I said, "What's a pack?" He said, "Well, here's how it works. There's twelve people in a pack, and PAC—I don't know what it stood for—and uh, it costs three thousand dollars a year, and you meet once a month. And at the meeting, each year we go to each person's office one time." If you're the host of the meeting, we meet your key team, we look at your PL, and and then we rip you to shreds for seven hours. You have 11 peers who are doing what you're doing, they're CEOs of growing companies who will finally tell you the truth, who will ask you the hard questions, who will hold you accountable. And then next month, you get to do that with 10 other people for the next person, and around it goes. And I was struggling, and insecure at the time. And it was also uh, a real stretch for me to pay $3,000. So I did it. And it was a fascinating experience. And I got to know Joe and I said, so Joe, how many of these packs do you have? Cause he didn't come to every meeting and I'm not going to get the number right, but I think he said 40 do the math. Wow. And the reason the pack worked is that people were coaching each other. The reason that the pack worked is that showing up in the room was a different transaction than having an executive coach, and the domain expertise that Joe brought to the table was not to be an executive coach, but to create the conditions for group enrollment and persistence. The pack I was in, where I only lasted a year, pack I was in, two people had gotten married from meeting in the pack, and some people <laughs> had been in the pack for eleven years, right? And so he had built a flywheel that worked going forward. So if you're a solo Pilates instructor, well, what does it mean to have group Pilates instruction in an unusual setting or doing it through groups? It's a different thing. And once you build it, then Joe could hire a junior Joe to go to other meetings if he wanted. And suddenly he's productized what he built. And that's become not his, but Vistage and others are like that. So I get that the the coaches who are asking this question are gifted, generous and thoughtful, but there isn't an app that's going to solve this problem.
0: I think there's an interesting piece there, which is something I've had to learn maybe the hard way um, where I have a coach who's told me this, which is that as much as I think that I matter to the interactions with my customers, I don't actually, (laughs) I matter way, way less. And it's, To your point, the enrollment, the decision that they've made. And I'm a piece of that, maybe, but not the driver. So, Joe, in this scenario, didn't have to be at every meeting. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, That is so helpful. We get a lot of those consultants, coaches. Am
1: I I going too fast or too slow in my answers? Because I can adjust it if you want me
0: to. Oh, I'm having a blast. I I think it's just checking. (laughs) No. I have two more ideas that I think we can, you know, we'll start with one that I think is, um, this is another idea that's come up a lot and I'm, I'm curious as to your thoughts on it in for, for two reasons, which I won't spoil it, but first, um, we've got a lot of people from California specifically in New York who say there are lots of farms in California and farms in New York, and there are certainly CSA programs, but. Why isn't there a marketplace where you can get produce directly, either shipped directly to you from these farms or some other way to more sustainably support the farms without having to go to Whole Foods or if Whole Foods even buys from the local farms. Um, that comes up a lot about that, that marketplace. And that is a more general question of how do you start a marketplace or, or or approach a marketplace problem.
1: I love this question. I, I'm, a, I'm a longtime CSA member. I go to the farmer's market at least once a week, except in February. Um, there's clearly a significant disconnect between the people who grow the food and the people who can afford to pay a fair price for the food they eat. And what we've invented as the middleware uh, is insufficient. The typical CSA is 40 years out of date and doesn't create the conditions to feel like uh, it is a thoughtful, modern, organic alternative to whatever lifestyle people are leading. You just end up with a lot of onions and carrots and, and in a dingy church. And it doesn't, it's not over time, it might feel fun to join it, but it's difficult to see that it's uh, for many of the people who are part of it, the highlight that it could be. So a couple thoughts. The first one is you can't out Amazon, Amazon and <laughs> marketplace is not the way I would think of this. You know, there, there there's uh, farmer Jones in Ohio who sells to uh, chefs. He sells more than 40 different kinds of lettuce. He sells 30 kinds of micro herbs. It's a fascinating website and it's, expensive and worth it but the typical person isn't going to shop there plus it doesn't line up with the way food is grown because he's got you know he he plants a tenth of an acre of something and it's only available for a few weeks that works for a chef but that's not the mindset that we've trained people to have when they go to the supermarket so it feels to me if we go back to the pasta truck that the key to the whole thing is figuring out how do you find the eaters that want to be connected with the farmers? And that is what marketplaces actually are. Um, you know, So if we go all the way back 3,000 years to the bazaars of the Middle East, the bazaar is worthwhile because all the shoppers know that that's where the bazaar is and all the sellers know that that's where the bazaar is. And once everyone agrees that that's where the bazaar is, there's a bazaar, <laughs> right? That's the hard part is to create that space. Now, in my town, the space is the parking lot next to the train station. Hmm. And uh, the woman who started it, Pascal, that's her main contribution, was figuring out how to make it so that Saturday mornings, both sides know that this is about to occur. By doing it in person, she eliminates shipping. She eliminates being a middle person on the transactions and following the green market New York model, she's just charging a little bit of rent. But there are lots of ways that I could imagine doing it without it being that permanent, where I could imagine being the impresario, the person who organizes 15 farmers and organizes people in seven communities so that using digital technology, you can alert that group of 800 people that a flatbed truck is going to pull up in this place for these three hours, this is when you need to come and this is what we got this week. Hmm. Because if you're the owner of that list, you own the bazaar. And now you can attract new buyers, you can attract new sellers, and no one can stop you. (laughs) And again, it works with the smallest viable audience. It works if just one person who grows watercress figures out how to organize 100 people who want watercress that's enough to start.
0: Fantastic. And so it's, it does have echoes a little bit of the food truck. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's, and then I guess the last question on that is more about interacting with people. So how do you go about pitching this to farmers? Do you just go sort of talk to them? Is this something that they want or how do you go about that? Cause I, I, a lot of our founders get blocked then where it's like, that seems like an uncomfortable thing to do.
1: Um, It is uncomfortable. There are a couple of reasons it's uncomfortable. First of all, who's taking the risk? If you're asking the farmer to take the risk, why should they do that? Farmers (laughs) take more risk than almost anybody every day. And why should they trust you? So we've got to solve those two questions. Well, you as the impresario have resources that you can use to reduce risk. So if you go to a farmer and say, I would like to buy all of the watercress you have available on Saturday at the current wholesale price, so you take zero risk, they don't have to trust you. You can just give them the money for all of the watercress and they will say, when are you coming back? I would like (laughs) to do that again, right? So it's easy. But if you're going to the farmer and saying, I want you to change the way you do your job and take these huge risks that are emotional and financial so that I can come out ahead as a low risk middleman, of course, that's an awkward conversation to have. So what, you know, when Amazon got started, it was uh, right near the end of my mom's life. And she um, was the manager, the founding manager of a bookstore in a museum in Buffalo, New York. And one day she gets a call and they say, we think you have this rare art book and we know it costs $35. We would like to buy it and we will overnight you a check for it plus a FedEx label to send it to one of our customers. My mom's like, bring it on. (laughs) Right? Well, Amazon had sold that book to somebody because they had told everyone in the world that they had every book ever made (laughs) and someone had bought that book, but they didn't have it. So they had somebody who went through a lot of trouble to sell that book at a loss, but never again did my mom have to distrust that person if they called on the phone because they said, we can want to buy this at what it costs. And they did. So Amazon used investor money to reduce the
0: risk for people who didn't have access to that. So it's risk, trust, and sequencing, right? Very cool. Um, okay. We'll do one more. And then I have, these
1: are great having a blast.
0: (laughs) Good, good. I'm glad. Um, and then I have a, just a couple of early stage entrepreneur questions that we'll end with, but this next one, um, this is a hard one. And I think those are the best ones, but this is someone who wants to again, change a broken system. And they said, if there was transparency into the real cost of goods, so if they, brought into so if when you were buying you know this coffee mug and it came in a box with plastic in it if you knew what the actual cost of that coffee mug was and if that was displayed to everyone it would change behavior and the it it was basically that with a question of how do how do i start this because it was someone who actually understood what the actual cost of all these things were. And I believe in the email, it said something like eggs, a, a dozen eggs should actually cost 20 bucks or something like that. Um, and the stuff that's plastic wrapped should cost significantly more. Um, flights were obviously a big one as well. How do you, how do you think about this problem? Um, it's a, yeah. Yeah.
1: So before my new book, I spent a year full time, 60 hours a week as a volunteer running, organizing, not running, organizing the Carbon Almanac. So when I look people in the eye and I tell them that plastic recycling is a myth invented by the plastics industry and the chemists there, no, it cannot be done. That when you sort your plastic, uh, it is going to get picked up and be incinerated. People look at me, they trust me because they know I've done the work. And then they persist in putting the plastic in the recycling bin. And they do this because the social pressure, the narrative, the our fear of looking death in the eye all add up to how do I gain some semblance of control over this privileged wasteful life that I am leading? And some people respond by composting and stuff like that. Some people respond by throwing the plastic in the trash like I do. So now I know when I go to the store, I better not buy something with plastic because I'm going to have to throw it in the trash and feel double bad. Um, Which is a long way of saying this is a really, really hard problem. And I'm afraid that there are two challenges with what this person described. The first one is implementing it in the sense that there are very few brands that are going to voluntarily do this. And B... Whether if it is implemented, it will change people's behavior. And my understanding is, no, it will not. That people who smoked knew for 25 years how dangerous smoking was. There were labels on the packaging. This will kill you, which has been shown to make teenagers increase their sales, not decrease them. So what changed? What changed is two things. Cigarette taxes went up. CVS stopped selling cigarettes. Those two things made a huge impact on how many cigarettes people bought. So the right answer here is not to label it, but to actually charge it. That the right answer is we need to price carbon fairly. And in countries around the world, this is slowly happening. It has to happen much faster, which is when we pay the accurate price, or the lifetime damage that carbon does, people will then instantly, within minutes, change their behavior. But until we do, I am have zero optimism that information is going to solve the problem. So if you're an entrepreneur, an impresario, the question is, what can you do with this insight? Well, I have two thoughts. One, you can build a brand that proudly charges the fair price. And the way Patagonia has, say, we're gonna tell you the truth about this. We don't want you to buy this. We want you to buy the used one. And the brand, the label, is worth the extra you're paying. Because me having the little Patagonia logo here was worth me paying $20 extra for the thing. The second thing I could imagine doing is figuring out how to be that impresario federation creator that helps coordinate industry action to push for carbon pricing, because that's not necessarily a for-profit business, but your grandchildren will thank you. Mm. Really helpful.
0: There's um, I saw a business recently that was doing something similar where it's a, it's essentially a plugin to your browser. And when you see, when you're shopping, it will show you a used version that you can buy of something very similar, if not exactly what you're shopping for.
1: Yeah. Or, you know, I we did a lot of promotion for Ecosia. Uh, Ecosia is a search engine that if everyone switched to it, uh, it would replace, it would sequester all of the carbon created by all the cars in the world. That's how effective it is and how many searches people actually do on Google. Um, the research, Ecosia search results are at least as good as Google's. There are fewer Mm. ads. It's just as fast. And it doesn't matter how many times I blog it. It's really hard to get people to switch. So there is a cycle here. It takes time. And if we're going to be culture changers, it really helps to focus on who's open to it.
0: And then why will they tell their friends? Great. Two last quick ones, questions, not, ideas. I don't know if we have time for another idea. Although I did have a list of about 25 that I, I can do
1: one more and then we'll do two quick questions or we can do two quick questions and then one more, whatever you want to do.
0: We'll do the two quick questions. We'll see where we're, where we're at. Um, the, okay. So I, I think there's, there's a question that comes again from the dip and I apologize for pulling all my inspiration from it, but it's just such a good book. Um, where
1: the song of significance.
0: That's right. That's right. Um, the, there, there's a thought in there that basically says that people try and average their way to success, do average things to get um, non-average results, I guess. And my question is, what do entrepreneurs do that is average that maybe they don't know is average? Because there are a lot of people who have never started a business before and they're, they're doing, they have no context and they're doing stuff that maybe they think is the right stuff. Is there anything that pops to your mind that might be average and heading them to nowhere?
1: Most people who call themselves entrepreneurs are actually freelancers. They are trying to build an independent entity where they have no boss. But they are not entrepreneurs in the sense that they're going to use someone else's money to build something bigger than themselves that makes money while they sleep, where they can personally walk away and the business will get even better. So Larry Ellison is an entrepreneur who built Oracle but Larry Ellison doesn't code or make sales calls. I don't even know what Larry Ellison does. It doesn't matter. He created the conditions for Oracle to occur. So the first mistake entrepreneurs make is they're not actually entrepreneurs, they're freelancers. If you're a freelancer, and I am one, by the way, you're only as good as your clients. Your clients determine what you're going to do all day and how you're going to do it. And number two, all the time you're spending doing the work is time you're not spending building the entity. So I'm a freelancer because I prefer to do the work now. So I have no one to manage. I'm not trying to productize or scale. I want to simply do my work. But if that's what you sign up to do, then don't complain that it's hard to be an entrepreneur because you're not an entrepreneur. You're a freelancer and proud of it. So then go get better clients and keep ratcheting up The what you make. Well, the hard part of that, if you don't want to be average, is to turn people down, is to say, my slogan is not, you can pick anyone and I'm anyone. That if you're a wedding photographer or a magician, you don't want to say, what do you need? And then give it to them. You want to say, this is what I make and it's probably not for you. But if it is for you, I'm exactly the person you need. So that's the freelancer path. In the entrepreneur path, Every minute that you are doing work that you could hire someone else to do, you are doing a bad job. Mm. That the entrepreneur's job is to create the conditions for other people to do the tasks. And your job is to figure out some of the tasks where you are going to over invest to create something that isn't average. So let me talk about my friend Apollonia. Apollonia owns one of the most important bakeries in the world. It was founded by uh, her father and her grandfather, Alain Alpoulin. It's on Rue de Cherche-Medie in Paris. If anyone gets a chance to go have an apple tart, tell them I sent you. Their cash register is not above average. Their store layout is not above average. The kind of bags they put their food in, not above average. But the boule they make, the sourdough that is baked in a 400-year-old oven in the basement is so far above average that people fly from Japan to get one. And by obsessing about the way the cookie, the punition crumbles in your uh, when you bite it, Lionel built something that wasn't average, that people talked about. I dedicated my book, Purple Cow, to him. He died in a tragic helicopter crash. And now that Apollonia is running it, she has maintained his above average standard, but she wants to build a brand that resonates with people. Well, if she says, well, we're just like every other luxury brand in Paris, then she's got a lot of work to do. But if she says there's something specific about what we stand for, that's work she can't outsource to any other human. She has to decide what that is and then create the conditions for that to occur. So that wasn't a short answer to a short question, but I did my best.
0: It was fantastic. and I think it highlights that the hard part might be choosing what is the thing that you spend your time on and what's the thing that matters. Correct. That was great. Thank you. Um, we'll do one more question. I know that we're we're a second over time and I want to be oh good. Um, good. This is a question that I think, I'm not sure where it originated. It's been floating around for a while, and I think it's kind of a cool one. Um, If you were able to, to create a billboard that everybody who was thinking about doing something meaningful had to pass every day, and I'll sort of lengthen out the question to give you a second to think about it, had to pass every day on their way to work or on their way home or whatever, what would you put on the billboard?
1: Okay, so I have to do an aside about billboards. I used to work (laughs) with Jay Levinson, the father of guerrilla marketing. And Jay would, billboards are a very specific form of media. He said, the best billboard ever made says, free coffee next exit. (laughs) Because it needs to be urgent. There needs to be very few words and it needs to invite somebody along for the ride that anything longer than that or more complicated than that doesn't work when you're driving 60 miles an hour. And so my preamble is um, we're burning the world down. We, for a hundred years, have been sucking oil out of the ground at a price way cheaper than it should be. We have built more wealth than anyone could ever imagine. The percentage of people on earth who are fully poor is lower than it's ever been. We have created uh, a technology regime where there's a supercomputer in the pocket of a billion people. We have built the conditions for lots of people, including you and me, to do jobs that didn't even exist 50 years ago where we don't make food or shelter or healthcare, that we are all playing with wants, not needs. And with all of that going on, people still show up and do their work, counting the minutes for their work to be over. (laughs) Even though we are working more hours than we have ever worked before in human history. And so I guess uh, my billboard would say, does it really matter? Question mark. Because you've got plenty of ways to make a living, but what are you going to do to make a life, to make a difference, to do work you're proud of with people who care? And my short one word description of that is significant, that what people actually want from their day is not to get paid a lot and work very little. I surveyed 10,000 people in 90 countries. What people want is to exceed their own expectations, to be treated with respect, to make a change happen. And... If we are doing something that is significant, we can't wait to do it again. And we sacrificed an enormous amount to get to where we are right now. And it's just a shame to waste it.
0: Fantastic. That is, that's a, a great way to wrap things up. Um, the Song of Significance is a book that will be out by the time this is released. Um, it will be wonderful. Everything that you do is thoughtful and it, it's just been such an inspiration and an influence in my life and I'm I'm it was incredible that you came on thank you so much an absolute pleasure keep making a ruckus keep leading it matters this was the idea to start a podcast brought to you by tacklebox thank you again to seth for coming on and please grab his book the song of significance and If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job and you want to flesh out the former before you leave the latter, head to gettacklebox.com and apply. We'll get back to you in 72 hours. We have helped hundreds of entrepreneurs and we might be able to help you too. Have a great week.